Hello, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we explore what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. And speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Reed Lackey. Typically with me is my good friend of 20 plus years, Nathan Rouse. But as you've come to learn, whenever I open the episode, he's not here with me today. And no, this is not one of our usual fake out bits. Nathan, unfortunately, genuinely couldn't be here with me today because of scheduling constraints. But I do have a very special guest that I'm extremely excited to have a conversation with today. He is a novelist, a journalist, a screenwriter, the Bram Stoker award-winning author of best-selling books, including My Best Friend's Exorcism, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampire. Empire Slaying, Paperbacks from Hell, and several more. His most recent work, which hits shelves and digital pathways on July 13th everywhere, is called The Final Girl Support Group, and it comes highly recommended. Everyone, wherever you are, extend please a very warm welcome to our guest, author Grady Hendricks. Grady, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm all right. So far, so good. The day is not over yet, so things could go <laughs> in, in either direction. But thanks for having me. True story. Thank you so much for being here. This is uh, this is really a privilege for me. Um, I have to confess just before we get too deep into everything that I'm probably going to be very much the uh, uh, the fan of the work rather than the very um, sort of put together podcast interviewer as it is because I really love your stuff. So this is no, an exciting I, thing I, for me. Listen, I appreciate it. I, I I encourage enthusiasm in all forms. Awesome. That's fantastic. So I'd like to kind of break the ice a bit, um, as we do with every uh, first-time guest that we have, um, start with a couple of questions that we ask everybody. So I'll begin with the first shot across the bow is just, uh, you know, what got you into this uh, horror and writing and horror writing? What brought you to this quirky, fun, macabre little corner of the universe? And uh, feel free to share along the way any particular favorite movies or books that uh, played into that as well. Yeah, no. So I... um I didn't really read much horror growing up. I, I wasn't allowed to, to see R-rated movies, and uh, mm, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I th- and the covers really freaked me out of the paperbacks. So wow. I kind of avoided them. I read Stephen King like everyone else, and sure. and you know, Clive Barker and things like that. But mostly, my taste was science fiction and men's adventure stuff, mm. like you know, war war novels, right? Um, but. I always, my friends and I, I think like a lot of people always watched horror movies together. You know, that was just something you did. And so that was definitely a part of it. And then as I got older, I sort of like, I I don't know really what happened. It just sort of was like a slow boil. Um, And I actually was writing, supporting myself as a journalist for a really long time Mm. and a freelance writer. And um, then around 2008, all that work kind of went away. Uh, just the, the the press industry just exploded. Sure. The, the time you could make a living as a freelancer doing uh, pop culture coverage, which is what I did, really disappeared. And so gotcha. for unknown reasons, I sort of doubled down on writing fiction. Mm. I'd written a few stories and things, but I, I jumped in and 
And uh, I went to Clarion uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction Workshop out at San Diego and in 2009. And then from there, I just kept trying to write. I mean, this is, it is the one skill I had. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I was writing a bunch of different stuff at the beginning, but the horror is what people seem to respond to. And to be honest, it was the most fun to write. And so from there, that was it. I just doubled down. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any particular thing that you would cite as like, well, this is my this is my favorite horror movie or this is my favorite horror book or, or anything like oh, that? Oh, well, you know, I wouldn't say horror movie, but I think probably one of the two greatest movies ever made to me is Return of the Living Dead from 1985. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I feel like that movie delivers on every promise it makes the audience. Um, It goes in really unexpected places. And, you know, maybe it doesn't have anything deep to say the way something like Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal does. But at the same (laughs) time, I feel like it just works on every level. Mm, Weirdly, about five years ago, no, not five years ago, years ago, it took me five years and I read everything King had written in order Mm -hmm. and sort of recapped them for tour. And, um, and they're still up over there under the name The Great Stephen King Reread. But going through <laughs> that was really interesting because I, it really, um, you know, some of his books that I dismissed when I'd read them, when they come out, like the Tommy Doctors, sure. which I sure. hated when it came out, mm, I yeah. really fell in love with. Again, it's just such wow. a wild, over-the-top, mm-hmm. crazy book. And then there was other stuff like... Um, desperation which i'd always been sort of dismissive of because it came out at the same time as the regulators right and man i've never seen an author grapple with their religious convictions Mm -hmm. like right there in public the way he does in that book it's really kind of fascinating Um, and and that was a book i'd always just thought was really lightweight so i mean yeah and there's so much i mean i'm a huge shirley jackson fan oh yeah um yeah yeah, and and writing paperbacks from hell, one of the things that was the most fun was sort of stumbling across authors who'd fallen out of print who were just fabulous, like Elizabeth Ingstrom and Barry Wood and mm. Ken Greenhall. It was just there's so much good stuff out there. No, that's that's awesome. I definitely no, I, I I definitely resonate so much with what you said. That that Stephen King reread is going to come up a little bit later. I have a, okay. a slightly slightly funny story to tell you about that one, but no, we we actually covered. We did an entire episode on the lottery, which, of course, that's the that's the one that everybody knows of Shirley Jackson, either that right. or Hill House, you know, which we actually also covered the haunting of Hill House, but the Netflix adaptation, not her novel, uh, as it, it were. Um, but yeah, Shirley Jackson is 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 truly an amazing writer and not she's known for her scary stuff, but not like exclusively scary stuff. And she's got she's just an interesting character as it is uh, out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she gets as much appreciation and love as she as she probably deserves. She does around those core works those anchored works but um not so much around the rest of it um, well it's interesting because she has this reputation like you're saying and, and i agree with you it's a reputation she definitely has of of being sort of overlooked and then mm. when you look at her track record i mean she i think it's only is it john Cheever or john updike who has had more stories than her during when she was writing in the New Yorker, you know, Mm, I mean, she was, she was wildly successful when she was alive and yet somehow posthumously, she really fell off the map. And I I see Mm. that happen a lot with female authors, especially Mm. in the horror space. Um, You know, and you, you think about everyone associates Stephen King with 80s kind of blockbuster horror. Right. But the other right. two authors who were the big blockbuster horror authors in the 80s were both women. I mean, Anne Rice and V.C. Andrews. Absolutely. And so it's weird. It's weird that the women seem to fall off the map quicker than the dudes do. 
I, that is a that is a funny trait, and I, I completely agree with you. And of course, Anne Rice is still sort of uh, bristling around in the undercurrent of certain things. She's definitely, you know, still writing and everything. V.C. Andrews, of course, passed away. Yeah. What after her like like third Jeez. book or something like that? Yeah, I think it was... no, she wrote seven, and then oh, I mean, okay. but that's yeah. like a drop in the bucket. I mean, she's she's pub. There's been like seventy something books published <laughs> under her name. Yeah, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. Um, so this is this is already like getting the wheels turning on a bunch of things that I'm excited to talk to you about. But before we go too far down that path, yeah, yeah. the second question that we always like to ask people, and you can get as superficial or existential as you want to with this, oh, but, okay. but inquiring minds want to know, what scares you? What Just in oh. general. I mean, for me, it's easy. It's it's being broke. Um, I I know it's I know it's not a very romantic answer, but um, sure, there's not a scarier feeling in the world mm-hmm. than watching the end of the month come up and you got nothing. You can't cover it. Um, I feel that to my bone. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. um, it's you know, for years, um, I carried around a ton of credit card debt that I racked up when I was writing some of my books, just because as an author, you get paid twice a year. I mean, you get two Mm -hmm. checks a year. Um, and so if you're not the greatest at managing that, or if that's just not enough, I mean, it's, it's rough. I mean, you know, I did that Stephen King reread for tour because I wanted to do it, but also tour paid 25 bucks a post. And so I was doing those once a week. So it's a hundred bucks. It's it, that was grocery yeah. money some months. So um, absolutely, I, absolutely. I, I didn't. I didn't grow up impoverished or anything. But definitely, mm-hmm. um, there have been times when I just have been dead broke and in my <laughs> life, and uh, it is absolutely terrifying. No, I completely feel that. Absolutely. Um, well, I I want to take this kind of, um, if we can, kind of a maybe a labyrinthine sort of journey through your bibliography, if we can. Let's um, labyrinth. So it was funny because I was debating about coming into the interview. I was like, do I want to go chronologically? Do I want to go? So what I landed on is like, I'm going to make it a little bit more personal and I'm going to go in order of the uh, way that I discovered you because like right. I, I, yeah, yeah. I no, had been... Cool. I had been reading your stuff for like years before it finally like clicked to me like, oh, this is all the same guy. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, right. um, so like the very first time you hit my radar individually was actually Paperbacks from Hell. Paperbacks from Hell was one of those things where all the algorithms said, read, you're going to love this. And, so, and they were absolutely right. Um, so I, I was intrigued automatically by the premise. I have a, a very big affection for just uh, nonfiction works about the culture of horror in any capacity behind the scenes of movies, anything like that. But here was a niche that I hadn't seen really explored to this capacity yet of, I can remember being a child, like going to the flea markets and garage sales and stuff like that. And I would see these books that would always catch my eye. I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative Christian home. And so like, there was always a lot of caution around a lot of that. And it's like, okay, you can't, you know, I can't even bring this to my mom and say like, "Hey, can I have Satan sleuth, please? Like, is it, can I please take that home? That's not that's not going to be <laughs> yeah. uh, not going to work." So, um, but but I had seen them around in the ether, and about the only time I could get away with it was I've always, at least for as long as I can remember, been a library junkie. I loved going to the library, and the library would let you take home fifty books at a time, and it's more than once. I would rack up that at capacity and just just go ahead and just say like, okay, as much as I can carry in my bags, that's what I'm going to carry. And that's where I would get a lot of this stuff. But your book was just a treasure trove for this. And if any listeners haven't checked this out, and I have a very specific question I want to ask you about, but um, I, I admired so much how you could put together something that was simultaneously felt comprehensive, but was concise and just 
propulsively readable. It was so entertaining from beginning to end. So it's a really great work. I want to know, uh, or maybe talk to the listeners a little bit about just what what drove the inspiration for that book, which you touch on in the book. So I feel like I already know it, but you, but for people who yeah. haven't read it. Well, it's interesting. So um, I was writing, I was basically, I love paperback swap shops, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where you go in, it's like, you know, a wall of romance novels. They still have a Western sure. section, you know, and they <laughs> always had a horror section. Um, and it was usually huge. And it had all these authors I'd never heard of, Ken Yulo and, um, you know, John, well, I'd heard of John Saul, but you know, um, sure, right. just people I just never knew. And I was like, are these books good? Like, what are they? So I just started <laughs> reading them at random. And um, I started writing about them for tour. And then my editor, after I did uh, Best Friends Exorcism, was like, you know, listen, would you put together a pitch for us? Would you be interested in doing a book of the, that's like these essays? He's like, I love reading wow. these articles. He's like, wow. I doubt we'd buy it. He's like, I don't see how we publish <laughs> that book, but put it together. So I put it together and they bought it. And I hired or I brought on board Will Erickson, who runs the Too Much Horror Fiction blog, who really knew mm. the field because um, sure. I needed someone to talk it out with and sort of sort of work on it with because I didn't know enough. And Mm. I only had 10 months to do this book. Usually you get about a year and I had like 10 months because I had to fit it in between uh, two, the books that were already on my contract. Gotcha. And um, so Will and I talked out and realized that there was this arc of this stuff sort of coming out of nowhere and then really disappearing in this sort of overproduction bubble in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And so that was great. And one reason it's so concise is ignorance. Um, oh, I mean, man. I had to educate myself so fast on the field and sure. I read 300 and something books uh, to write it. And, um, and Will had a vast knowledge on top of that. And since writing it, I, I keep reading. I mean, I kind of fell in love with this stuff. So I keep reading and I realized that if I knew now what I knew then, the book would have been twice as long because like mm, there's so. stuff that would have had, I would have had to do more about the splatterpunks. I would have had to do more about right. YA. I would mm-hmm. have needed a John Saul section. Like, oh, you know, it absolutely. needed right. more. But um, but at the time I knew that stuff, but I was like, we've got to just focus on the 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 bones here you know mm-hmm. uh, and, and keep it moving so yeah but yeah, yeah so that's where it came from and um i'm really glad i, I that book was a lot of fun to write and it was gave me a crash course education sure. in the history of horror well and also it's like um because before that the only real sort of horror centric reading list in a book form that i had was king's dance of macabre and yeah. so like that was the only thing that i'd had prior to your book that i was like oh i'm interested in what horror books are out there but it can be sometimes a bit difficult to find like uh comprehensive sort of critical analyses there's tons of you know fan blogs about like you should check this out or this out or this out but paperbacks from hell was just like oh great now i i'm just gonna write this down this down this town it was fun yeah i was amazed it didn't already exist to be honest i was like really we're the first people doing this will and i yeah no exactly and i think that's i think that's part of the big uh big pitch of why i love telling people about that book is like if you're in if you're into this kind of thing um then this is this is going to open so many doors for you it's really really fantastic um and uh, that, that's probably a good segue. You, you, you had mentioned a couple of times the the rereading of King that you did. So before I knew who Grady Hendrix was, I knew I had read paperbacks from hell and so knew the name from there. But then simultaneous to that, I had stumbled upon, I think I followed most, if not all of your articles at tour on the Stephen King reread, just because of how big of a fan I am of King. So I've, yeah. I've got every hardcover main edition. I'm not 
one of those like Uber collectors who has lots of rare stuff. I have maybe at most a couple of things that are hard to find, but for the most part, I've got just the main staples. But I loved it because I was like, oh man, this guy's going through like every single King book. And it was fun to go along that with you. Still had no clue that this was the same guy who <laughs> done paperbacks from hell as I was reading it. Um, but we definitely are big fans of King over here. We do um, every about 25 episodes or so. We gather a group of our recurring guests together and have a larger conversation around one of King's staple works. Our most recent one that we did wasn't a book, actually, but we covered uh, Storm of the Century, uh, the miniseries yeah. that he had done. Yeah. You know, I've got a PDF of the screenplay for that, mm -hmm. and I really am dying to read it because... It's one I'd skip because it wasn't a book. And sure, it's sure. one that a lot of people cite as being oh, really man. kind of essential king. So yeah. I really want to like read the screenplay and then watch it. Yeah, I would highly recommend that. So just to pile on to the affirmation, like it's it is a great example of what he can do really well. So it's got a lot of the staples that he might get sort of teased for or might get dismissed for. But the stuff that he does really well is also on full display. And I highly recommend it. If you if you are. Which yeah, I mean, no, I'm it's yeah, on my list. Great. I'm I'm really happy yeah that I, I'm, I'm happy i've got it to look forward to <laughs> exactly because there's not much of that anymore i'm like we've got we've got a couple of new books you know this year that had come out i just read his uh his most recent one called later and i'm looking forward to i think billy summers is the new one that's coming out this year but anyway um right. yeah but but yeah it's hard to find especially when you've been a fan as long as we have it's hard to find stuff that you haven't already encountered to get to encounter yeah. again um so yeah but that's really great and for listeners who are interested to in be like, oh, I want to find Grady's reread of Stephen King. I think you can get to it from your website, GradyHendricks.com. You can get to it from right. my website. And also just, um, it, it's just Google great Stephen King reread. Mm. And there it is. It's funny. A lot of people I noticed started doing a King reread and then it mm. kind of dies in the middle. Like yeah. when they hit the nineties, they kind of stop. And I'm like, I, and I really think that there's, there's some received wisdom about Stephen King that I would argue with a lot. One is that he mm. can't write endings. I mm. actually think his endings are usually pretty strong. Mm. Um, wow. yeah. I think there's a few exceptions, but sure. they, in general, they're strong. The other one is that um, people say, oh, you know, King didn't write anything, doesn't write it. He's not as good as he used to be. And I actually think there's, mm. you know... Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I think Duma Key and Revival and 112263 are pretty essential yes. King novels. I mean, yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, yes, the Dead Zone and Carrie and Misery and Salem's sure, Lot, but like sure. those other ones, I think you can't, they, they, they got to be in your top. 15 if not your top 10 somewhere no, in there. absolutely well and what i'd loved so much and and you know this is not a podcast about stephen king's books but just to sort of put a button on it like i loved some of the smaller works that he'd done like colorado kid is one of my favorite things that he's done mm -hmm. and yeah. uh joyland the stuff he's done for hard case crime i've really, yeah. really responded to i loved mr mercedes so i i would uh, join your enthusiastic sort of uh, counterpoint to his best work is behind him. True, yeah. The the major iconic work has been more culturally significant because it's had more time to dig its roots into everything and more adaptations exactly. and everything like that. But in terms of just his craft as a writer, um, I feel like he's he's as strong as he's ever been in some cases. There are still the dud here and there, but um, yeah. but even his duds are highly readable because he's just got that, you know, that flavor, that style. Um, but I want to get back to your books now. Sorry for derailing <laughs> us, but I was just... No, 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 not at all. Um, so in my little journey... I was, it was like, okay, 
uh, paperbacks from hell, then I stumbled upon the great Stephen King reread. And then it was recommended. It was already on my radar, but it was actually recommended. Uh, we had someone who used to be more involved than she is just because she's got a family and kids and everything. But we, we called her our literary correspondent. So shout out to Meredith Curran um, had recommended my best friend's exorcism said, hey, you, 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 this is right up your alley. You would love this. And she was absolutely right. So that was my next book that I kind of encountered. Uh, the digital download came with a Spotify playlist, which I thought was super fun. Yeah. Um, and so you had described this book yourself, I think, as, as um, The Exorcist Meets Beaches. Um, but there's one thing about this book. So the, I, I'd like when we talk about these books to sort of just encourage all the listeners to go and check out anything that, that thinks strikes your fancy because you, sincerely... You're a very talented writer. Your, oh, your books are very easy to read. They, they often feel like cinema in the mind. It's really propulsive. It's really uh, engaging. So I just love that about them. Um, but I have to ask about My Best Friend's Exorcism. As I was reading it about, I believe it's about the halfway mark. It's been a while since I've reread it. But ab about the halfway mark, you totally brought in a piece of my childhood that I have yet to see represented in any fictional pop culture. And that was the power team. Like, I can't remember what you <laughs> called them in the yeah. book, but I was sitting there. I was like, this man like, talking about the power team. Like I can, I remember the power team. Like who knows they about used this? To, yeah. They used to come through Charleston and perform, I think at Gilliard auditorium or maybe in oh, an auditorium wow. in North Charleston. And I'd see the ads on TV. I never went, but I saw the ads sure, on TV sure. all the time. And when I was writing the book, I was like, well, who would be performing? And, and it's a deliverance, really, because it's the Protestant version of an exorcism. Right. But I was like, who'd be doing that? And I was like, of course, it's these guys. Oh, of my course gosh. it is. It worked so perfectly. Yeah. Ripping up phone books for Jesus, man. I yeah. tell you, it, was the, it was the craziest thing. But I was just, I had never, again, I, I was gleeful with it. I kept like in that way that gets weird when you're reading a book, maybe not as much so when you're watching a movie, but I'm like, keep looking around the room like, does anybody see this? Like, like do you know this? Like, th this guy gets it it was it was really really well, fun one of the fun things about writing a couple of the i mean that and um the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires which is mm -hmm. set in the 90s is sure. i do a lot of research when i'm doing a book set in the past mm -hmm. and even though i live through it sure and um the more I immersed myself, the more I'd remember stuff that I'd just forgotten, you know? And that was one right. of them. It was just yeah. came out of the blue. I was like, holy crap, those no, guys. I had completely forgotten about them. No, it was super great. But that book just sort of writ large is, is a whole lot of fun. And uh, if we have time toward the end, there's, there's, that book is sort of an anchor for something else that I'd love to talk about sort of more thematically, again, if there's time. Yeah, um, sure. But uh, so then my, my next sort of, sort of piece is actually pivoted over into film. Uh, I subscribed to Shudder and Shudder had this as an exclusive. I don't know if they still do or if it's still the only place you can find it. I think you can find it elsewhere. But uh, you had written the screenplay for Satanic Panic, the film oh, starring yeah, yeah. Rebecca Romaine and uh, Haley Griffith, Chelsea Stardust directed. And you had collaborated on that or, or Ted Gagan had written the story for it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think you had worked with him as well, if memory serves on a film called Mohawk. Is that right? Yeah. T okay. Ted and I were going to do Satanic Panic together. Mm -hmm. And then the company we were doing it for suddenly had some tax situation open up. And they're like, okay, oh. we need to do this period movie that Ted had pitched them. He had given them like a three paragraph pitch Mohawk set during the War of 1812. And they're like, cool, we need a script in six weeks. And oh. 
Ted was like, do you know any? And I'm a big war of 1812 buff. I, I really oh, find okay. it fascinating. I was like, oh, you've come to the right place. So we did <laughs> Mohawk and then we were going to do Satanic Panic next. And we realized that they'd never signed a contract with us for oh, Satanic wow. Panic, even though they'd announced it and all this stuff. Sure. So we were like, well, who wants to do this? And um, we, we, we hooked up with some folks and, and made that. So um, yeah. So That's Mohawk awesome. and Satanic Panic back to back. That's awesome. Now, so in full disclosure, I still, it, it's, it's on my to-do list to get to Mohawk. I will, I will prioritize. I'm not offended. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I have seen Satanic Panic. And I did think it's interesting. Don't know how much time we you know, need to or want to spend on this. But obviously, like with my best friend's exorcism, and you'd covered it a bit from the you know, just analytical and, and uh, sort of maybe historian side in paperbacks from hell. But the Satanic Panic era of the seventies mm -hmm. and eighties is I, by, by my understanding or by my observation, I guess I should say is becoming a bit more of a cultural touchstone where people keep kind of coming back to that or touching onto it or referencing it. And I'm just curious, like, you know, kind of your thoughts on that particular era and especially looking at it 20, 30 years removed, yeah. sort of the, the mayhem and, and kind of the mass hysteria that kind of arose around that, uh, because I just find it interesting that it's shown up in a couple of places, both nonfiction right. and fiction for you. Yeah, well, two things. One is that I find the iconography of the Satanic Panic so mm -hmm. compelling. I mean, I grew up with it. So, sure, you know, sure. Dungeons and Dragons, like Chick Comics and Dungeons and oh, Dragons absolutely. is a portal to the occult. And, um, right. you know, people in robes, naked chicks with swords and mm -hmm. people in robes and pentagram. I just find all that iconography sure. just very comforting. <laughs> it's my childhood. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's um, my childhood. Chick tracks, I, man. Pour, pour a cold oh one out for the wildest. <laughs> the, the meanest comic books on earth. I they love were them cruel. So much. They were so, so mean. cruel. Yeah. Sorry, I keep cutting um, you off. Good. But no, no, no. It's like, um, but the other thing is, I remember very, very clearly how much it scared me at the time, not because of what its claims were, but I remember reading during the McMartin preschool trial that these kids mm. were talking about getting flushed down toilets and right, being right. killed and brought mm. back to life. And I was like, I was like probably 12 or 13. And sure, I remember reading sure. about it in the paper and thinking, this is crazy. And then right, right. realizing that judges and reporters and cops mm -hmm. and lawyers were taking it seriously. Right. And that mm -hmm. was such a destabilizing moment to me because I, I remember thinking like, oh, my God, everyone's this is clearly insane. And people are acting as if it's not. And right, right. It felt so weird that this became real through simple willpower. Sure, um, right. And one of the things that I think is hard, and, and I really, I mean, one of my dream projects is to do a nonfiction book about the satanic panic. Because sure. one of the things I think is hard is there are still people in prison today mm. for mm. crimes that are clearly BS, you know, fabrications, that, right? Yeah. 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 And, and claims that have been retracted and people had their lives absolutely ruined. Um, yeah. right, of and course. I think that's crazy. And oh, I feel, and yeah, and I feel like there's a real duty to remember it because mm -hmm. as a country, we lost our minds. And, yeah, sure. um, and you just, I don't know, I feel like if we can just 
really wrap our heads around what we did then. Maybe we won't yeah. do it again. Highly unlikely, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm an optimist. To, no, I, I and I, I appreciate your optimist. I, I, I feel like I used to be much more of one than I am now because it feels like uh, there's a new wave cyclically where we just sort of yeah. lose our collective minds. Uh, and and it's fascinating to hear you talk about particularly that era in that tone. Like I can still remember. I don't even remember the guy's name, but I can still remember like my parents had had provided to me or they had come across. I can't even remember the context, but it was a six and a half hour like greatest. It was a series of videos unpacking the occultish, demonic sort of undertones to rock acts. You know, like it was the first time I'd heard of. Alice Cooper, the first time I'd heard of, you know, uh, Motorhead or, you know, even even folks that are, you know, a little bit more tame and benign, like, you know, the Prince and the Kiss. And I mean, it covered yeah. the gamut. It was six and a half hours. And I can still remember <laughs> some of that. But what was interesting, it's interesting to hear you describe it, because I don't think I was as coherent to the, the undercurrent of what was really going on, as it sounds like you were. But there was definitely something brimming in the undercurrent of like this this feels weird like this feels yeah. strange you know um but it wasn't until i matured a bit both in my thinking and in just life experience till i could finally wrap some uh some sort of concrete guidelines around like oh okay i see this this is partially what happened and i pride myself though maybe a poor one on being some somewhat of a hobby sociologist so learning a little bit more about those kinds of trends and everything gave me a bit of clarity but it really is it is a bananas time and yeah. i think i wonder sometimes if to your point sort of remembering the times we've collectively lost our mind before helps helps some of us to cope or understand with the ways in which those kinds of things can be repeated so warning signs that we begin to see g- growing with like you know uh the, the the growth of just the wide embrace of certain falsehoods or certain sort of trends of things that just people continue to uh to to absorb and then and then proselytize on their own uh so anyway probably a bunch yeah. more places that we could go there but well and you know just to your point it always happens around protect the children that's always the yes. rallying cry of this 100%. stuff when it starts and hey yeah. Who can argue with that? Children? Right. Fine. They're right. popular. Right. No one wants to see them murdered. But at the same time, <laughs> it just, I, to me, that's always the warning sign. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an astute observation. Absolutely agree. Um, and you, so before we leave the satanic panic topic, now, this is another book that I have not read of yours. Because in confession, until I went digging on your website, I didn't know it existed. But um, you had written, like, this was one of your first novels. You'd written a book called Satan Loves You, right? Oh, was yeah, that, yeah. So, yeah. So that was, um, I wrote that I was co-authoring uh, a graphic novel cookbook with my wife and mm-hmm. I was writing a couple of YA books with a really good friend of mine in high school. And I hadn't really written anything of my own and okay. kind of to keep myself sane while I was writing on these two projects with other people. I wrote that book just for fun. And sure. I really wanted to take it seriously because I feel like anything in horror or or anything that's supposed to be metaphorical that you take literally mm. just gets so crazy. And taking the sure. idea of sort of the Dante hell mm, and right, Satan right. Mm-hmm. seriously is bizarre. Um, <laughs> and and to sort of imagine that physically existing. And and I realized that if Satan existed, God, he would just be so put upon. Like he was <laughs> right. he was being asked to do so much with so little and and just hated by everyone in the process. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and, and I was like, you know, and the people I was taught, because I, I grew up in a in a relatively uh, Christian Southern household. Sure. But, 
the people you sort of got this message of in, you know, in the satanic panic, definitely mm-hmm. of, you know, rock musicians and disrespectful awesome. comedians. All this. I was like, yeah. I like those people. And they're like <laughs> minions of Satan. I mean, I right. mean maybe right. Satan's not all bad. And so the, it's basically a book about a very put upon, very harassed Satan, just trying to keep the lights on, yeah, um, you know, in the face so of a lot of dislike. And I actually took it off the market a couple of years ago because mm-hmm. I want to do a rewrite on it and, and put it back out in a year or so um and it's just it's just i was a different writer then and i just really wanted to sort of like do something different with it so yeah no that makes a lot of sense you know it's funny it brings to mind god and i wasn't prepared to mention it so i'll mention it in passing there was an episode of all things of star trek the animated series that's always (laughs) stood out in my mind because in the episode there's a character and he's got a very sort of lucifer-like appearance to it um i forget what they call him in the episode. Cause I, again, I wasn't prepared to talk about it, but uh, I remember in this, in this animated series episode of the start of star Trek, there was uh, the premise is that this alien being was actually what people mistook for Satan all these years ago, like his sort of uh, visitations and everything. And in it, as the Star Trek crew are prone to do, they, of course, find a diplomatic solution, a sort of an advocating solution, uh, you know, a, a, a grace filled, if you want to call it that solution. And uh, and I always found that really interesting. So it kind of is along the same lines of kind of what you're describing about like, wait a second, this is the, this is this yeah. character, you know, who's who's been just been given the bad, the worst possible rap for however long. Yeah. Um, so I do find that really, really interesting. Um, we have a, so I have just a few more books that we want to, that I want to touch on with yours. So about that time. So connecting the dots on like, you know, I I remember seeing your name as the screenwriter on satanic panic. And that's when it all clicked like, Oh, the paperback from hell, the paperbacks from hell guy, the best friends exercise. So at that point I'm like, well, what else has he done? And so that actually led me to kind of in a collective gobble of about like a week or two, I consumed horror store and we sold our souls and the Southern book club's guide to vampire slings. This was just last year that I had only uncovered all this. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, okay. All right. So all in compact, really enjoyed all of them. They're very different from one another in a lot of different ways. Um, Let's start with horror store for a second. So horror store, which I think is one of your briefest books. It was a pretty quick read yeah. for me. It was, and um, it was, uh, so it was basically like the way I felt going into it, which I don't know if any of these descriptors strike you the right way. So I apologize if they don't, but I was like, okay, so this is basically Hellraiser by way of Ikea. That's, that's yeah, kind that's of what pretty much it. Is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it was really interesting. Uh, what, one of my favorite things about it in most of your books I think Southern Book Club is the only one that doesn't do it. You have these neat little inserts in between the chapters of mm-hmm. like artwork. And with Horror Store, it was like an Ikea catalog. The, the yeah. company is not called Ikea. It's, it's called Orsk in yeah. Horror Store. And, uh, but with each one, it's got this little catalog for a new Orsk product that is very much you know, patterned after sort of Ikea. But I love that towards the back half of the book, they get really malevolent. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that was, was a lot so of fun. That was a lot of fun to do because I'd written a bunch of catalog copy to to make ends meet, you know. Oh, and so it was okay, fun sure. to sort of turn that to uh to, to horror. <laughs> yes, no, it's fantastic, and it's super fun. It was great because like. I just I was immediately on board from like chapter two, I think, 
of the premise when they're like, oh, an overnight stay to find out who's been doing this vandalism and everything. And uh, and then I remember thinking like, okay, this is a horror novel. They're about to stay overnight in their retail store. And I worked about four years of retail myself in my earlier oh, career. Bless you, man. I know. Well, and we did our fair share of overnight inventory as it were. Yeah. And so like, I remember all the creepy things you find in the closet and everything. It really was, it was just a whole lot of fun to engage with that kind of story on that level. Um, so uh, then after that, uh, I do want to mention something interesting about uh, We Sold Our Souls. So of the, of the books of yours I've read, We Sold Our Souls feels a bit like an outlier, not as in that it's a dramatically different style or anything. Mm-hmm. But what I found compelling and interesting about that is at least a third, maybe little more than half uh, was kind of more introspective. And so, so we sold our souls for listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about. The premise is um, it's basically like uh, 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 maybe the Faust uh, story with, uh, yeah, with, it's with, like a deal with the devil story. Yeah. Yes. With, uh, but with a heavy metal overlay, like all of the titles are heavy metal albums and everything of chapter titles. And, um, but what I found, so forgive this pun, like I found it to be sort of introspective and lyrical again, forgive the pun. Um, but at, we spend a lot of time inside Chris's spirit, as it were. And mm-hmm. so to that end, my experience of reading that book was a little bit less. I, I, I would say for myself, it's, it's probably one of your more grimmer or bleaker works, just, <laughs> right. just writ large, you know, uh, that scene. I don't want to spoil too much for readers, but that scene where she has to escape the well, like just holy crap, Grady, like that, oh, that, whole, <laughs> that, that holy thing, that whole thing was just like so extremely unnerving. Um, really, really scary sequence inside kind of, I think about the middle of this book. Um, but what I wanted to ask about it is it did feel like there was something of an intention to kind of approach your, I guess you would say established style, if you had even established a style at that point, um, and maybe turn it a bit on its head. Like I said, we spend a lot of time inside Chris's memories. We spend a lot of time sort of with her own thoughts and sort of putting dots together. Am, am I picking up on some legitimate things or is well, that? Well, I think if, it, if that happened, and I, I don't disagree with you, it's an interesting take on it. It was unconscious on my part. Gotcha. The thing about writing that book that was really, really rough is so that was originally going to be a book I was writing about kind of um, dudes and anger and, okay. and sort of like, you know, the way that I know a lot of guys my age in their forties who they're still in the band, you know, they oh, still sure. yeah. believe that might pay off. And there's, a, they've got this real chip on their shoulder. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, it drags them down. And on the sure. other hand, you see it give them a lot of energy. That anger gives them a lot of fuel mm-hmm. that keeps mm-hmm. them going. And, um, and it just wasn't coming together. And I went to um, uh, an election night party, 2016 election at a friend's house okay. who was very all in for Clinton. Um, okay. And um, I got my what wife a and I got night for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and so my wife and I got there around 940 when Florida had just been called for Trump. Oh, man. And okay. it was pretty post-apocalyptic in their apartment. I mean, it was like, sure. It was a grim thing. And so my wife and I are like, we getting out of here. This is really <laughs> depressing. That's um, right. Like we had voted for Clinton too, but we were just kind of like, I sure. just, <laughs> this feels weird. Yeah. So I get it. We got out and we got on the elevator and they lived on the ninth floor. And I realized as we got on the elevator that if I was going to write a book about someone who mm-hmm. was disposable, who had just mm-hmm. been told by the world that they didn't matter, that they had wow. no value whatsoever, it had to be a woman. Um, mm-hmm. in, in 2016, mm-hmm. it had to be a woman. Wow. And, um, 
And so by the time we got off in the lobby, I was like, oh, got it. Chris Pulaski. I had it. I put it together. And one of the problems with that book is I was really trying to do something new very consciously with it. I didn't mm-hmm. want to rely on a lot of I love to take horror tropes and sort of like, sure. what can we do new with this? What do we, how do we reinvent this? What, what's the thing that's scary at the heart of this? And how do we really get at that? Yeah. And with this, I really wanted to try to do something new. And I thought there was a whole language that horror was ignoring about chemtrails and swatting oh, and wow. Pizzagate mm. and, mm-hmm. and black flag, false flag operations right, and, right. and all this stuff. And, and I was like, there was a real paranoia out there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did some documentary work and some reporting work on sort of the, the, the militia world and, and a lot of these sort of paranoid fringe groups uh, right. back in the nineties. And um, mm. I, I hadn't really been back in it since then. And so mm. I really immersed myself in sort of the online ecosystem of like wow. paranoia and conspiracy theories. And, and, it was bad. It was, oh, I can imagine there was always back in the nineties, there was always this sense of, I don't know, not fun, but there was always sort of a sense of humor in a lot of the conspiracies and some there weren't like mm. white supremacists, pretty humorless mm. always have been like course, Christian yeah. identity and um, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But posse comitatus always had a pretty decent sense of humor. And some of the other weirder groups were always mm. pretty upfront about how weird they were. And uh. I've even, I'd even done some really self-aware interviews with, with militia dudes and stuff, but now everyone was angry and mm. everyone was serious and everything felt life or death and it all felt really desperate. Sure, and sure. it was really depressing and mm-hmm. it really, so it really messed me up. Mm. Um, and so what happened was I was writing this, I was immersing myself in this like horribly depressing world sure to write a book that my editor was like i don't like this thing and i kept having to go back and rewriting it and we actually got to the point where we took it off the schedule and um and i that was around that was like december 23rd wow 22nd 22nd and he's like it's just not coming together and I was like, I can't, I, I can't give back this advance because I don't have it anymore. It wasn't that yeah, much money, but I sure, didn't have sure. it. Yeah, and sure. um, and so I knew that no one would be back in the office to pull the trigger. I'm taking it off the schedule until about January 3rd, I think was when people would okay. be back. Mm-hmm. And so I rewrote the book almost from wow. scratch. Wow. And, and it's really, to me, there's a lot of hope in that book, but I also mm-hmm. get that if you're not coming from it from the very dark place I was, that hope looks few and fall, fall very sure. slim. And when yeah. my editor came back, he's like, oh yeah, this is the book. And I was like, great. Um, yeah. But um, it was a really, really good day for my mental health when I deleted my account on several message boards. When the book I was done, imagine. when it was all mm. proofed, I was out. And that's a lot of what's in that book. And I think that's yeah. one reason people really respond to that book differently is I just wasn't in a good place writing it, you yeah. know, and, and and even beyond that, my life was not going well. I was, I was living on a credit card because I just sure. didn't have yeah. the money, you know, it was bad. So yeah. anyways, yeah. that's what you're seeing in that book. <laughs> no, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, hearing, hearing you recount those stories, that makes, it, it does, it brings a lot of that into clarity, but I do think that, that you've been able to sort of be and if if I if I'm allowed to use this language, like to be sort of a, a good steward with the kind of thing that you were kind of going through, because I think you have channeled something in that book that uh, that does sort of stretch to some deeper tendrils uh, that I think is more interesting. Like I've enjoyed all of your books, and the ones that I will like anxiously reread will mostly be for the fun of rereading them, but the way yeah. that I would rewatch a good movie or something like that. But 
when I eventually reread We Sold Our Souls, I think it will be a little bit more for sort of that exploring mining sort of thing to say like, okay, this connects to this because the character of Chris is just so very compelling. Like, again, we could spend, you know, the, the yeah. remaining 20 minutes, we, we won't, but we could spend the remaining 20 yeah. minutes we have just and on that. Just to say one other quick thing about it is one of the things about that book is, you know, the, the, the question Chris is dealing with throughout that is when do you quit? You know, she's yeah, middle-aged right. and she's still holding on to this dream. And that was me with that book. My books mm. were were selling, but it wasn't enough to make a full living on, but it yeah. took up all the time of a full living. And I was really like, what, what, when does this kick in? When do I sure. quit? When do right. I go to law school? I was like 40 something. <laughs> right. I'm not yeah. sure that was an option, but you know, <laughs> sure. so anyway, so that was really, that was, that book's very personal for me, but it's also, Still, you know, yeah. that's a double-edged sword. So no, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's funny because like, I was going to ask the, the, that personal question, you know, before we get to the new one, the, the, the last sort of stop in our little journey is of course the southern book club's guide to vampire slayings and and i do think it makes a lot of sense that here you you know uh you were born in charleston right charleston yeah. south carolina yeah, yeah um and so i'm from the south i'm a north carolina boy and oh um, boy our ancient enemies to the i north. know right i was like <laughs> oh this interview's over no so um but basically like i could tell you write the south really really well you write specifically oh, southern mother's very well. Of course, I have a Southern mother and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, yes, it, it's all over that. Um, and I was going to ask, like, it, it felt in some ways like that one was also a really personal work. Um, I do know what I know that I think you share in the opening chapter of the book is just, you know, the, the connection you had a relative, I believe, maybe a grandmother who had, who had suffered through dementia. Right. There's a character in the book, a pivotal character in terms of under standing and, and sort of getting on top of the main threat, uh, a character who struggles with dementia herself. Um, and so I did wonder, like, you know, how personal was that? Because it's also kind of, I think you had mentioned it's, it's a quasi, like, maybe like a spiritual sequel or just tangential sequel to My Best Friend's Exorcism. Yeah, spiritualist since it is set in the same neighborhood a few years sure. later. And mm -hmm. so it's, and that's the neighborhood I grew up in, you know? Uh, gotcha. um, yeah. And it's a book I wanted to write for a really, really long time. And honestly, two things had to happen for me to do it. One is I had to be a better writer. I just really wanted to get it right. And I wasn't ready to do that earlier. And then the other thing is, you know, my editor had a hard time committing to that book. It's, you know, wow. Um, you always want to write a book your publisher is excited about selling. And Quirk at that time was like, we don't know how to sell a book about a bunch of middle-aged housewives in a book club. Like, that's not oh our gosh. audience. Our audience is younger. They're pop culture-y. Right. Like, and mm -hmm. I get it. You know, like, you can't do everything. And so they're like, we don't know how to reach this audience. Um And then my editor was just kind of like, okay, what the hell? Let's, let's do it. You want to write it sure. this badly? Let's do it. And so... But yeah, that book is, 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 is a lot of that. I mean, that's the house I grew up in. You sure, know what I mean? Of course. There's, yeah. It's, it's a, it's really personal. Yeah. That's well, and it, you've done an amazing job. Like I love the oh, very, the very first chapter when like that experience that I could again, like feel to my bone marrow was of having to deliver a report on a book you have not read <laughs> and having to right. fake your way through that. Um, but I feel like, where that book goes. And I, th I feel this is a strength of yours in general, just as a reader, um, that your books writ large tend to have, uh, if they're not ultimately happy endings, 
there's there's an upbeat there's a you know like hmm. you, you, like uh there's always something that you can kind of hang yourself on that's like okay there's more to this story or there's the possibility of more to this story and maybe it's not going to be dark and dread you know dreadful the entire time which is something that i respond to a lot as a reader um but that one i feel like was one of the ones where there were several times where i was like this is going to have like a dark ending like this there's no way they make it out of this kind of thing and and uh, <laughs> right. and, and so yeah i did uh, i responded i responded quite strongly to that book and i think that was just you just put that out what last year right i read them all last last year so okay yeah since i had read that one in kind of in tandem with we sold our souls and horror store it was hard for me to remember exactly like when where they were in proximity to one another um but your new book which i do think i probably it's it's really hard i love all your books i'm not just saying that because you're the one in conversation with me but Final Girl support group is great, man. It's great. Oh, thanks. It's, and and I do think like um, again, if this descriptor, uh, if I can say this, and hopefully it be heard in the complimentary spirit in which it's meant for listeners who don't know anything about Grady's upcoming book, the Final Girl support group for me uh, in the early stages of it was kind of like maybe a version of like Avengers for horror characters, like where you're going to yeah. bring together all of these characters and. I love the fact that you've got them positioned and they're real people in, in the world of your novel. They're real people on whom the slasher franchises were based upon their real story. And right. that they, they all, as the title implies, they all get together and they have, they have a therapy group session where they support one another. <laughs> right. And, and uh, that is, you know, that's established pretty much in the first chapter of your book. And as much as I want to say about it, because the book has so many surprises and it has a lot of things that I think listeners, uh, it, your book deserves to uh, be read and have the surprises catch you as you're reading the book. So I won't be spoiling them here. Um, but I think basically sort of the, the inciting incident, if you will, is it becomes clear to them that somebody... Uh, a mysterious someone or something is intent upon ending the life of each of the final girls. And so right. they, they each have to kind of come to terms with their own story. And we have this through a narrator, a singular narrator. I do find it, it's interesting, perhaps worth noting for our listeners. I think every one of your books, again, I haven't read Satan loves you or, or occupy space, but I think every one of your books has a female protagonist at the, at the center. Um, yeah. All of them, except Satan loves you and occupy space. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So, um, so, so we, we are in, you know, the mind of, of one of this, one of these final girls as she's kind of trying to unravel this mystery. But I really loved so much of what the book had to say about, again, want to kind of tease without spoiling um, what it had to say about like collective trauma and individual trauma and all of the different ways in which, you know, your story is yours to claim. And there was some interesting things in there about how, how other people feel like your stories may not be as valid as other comparable stories. And there's just a lot right. of really interesting stuff going on in that book. And I, I, I highly loved it um, as a kind of a final well, button. Yeah. As a final button, like what else would you like to say to pitch your readers or just say, Hey, check out this book. Yeah, well, you know, this was really my my love letter to horror. I mean, mm. all my books revolve around a question, like something I'm trying to figure out for myself. And, sure. and so like with Best Friends Exorcism, I was really trying to figure out what it was about these high school friendships where they burned so hot and were so yeah. essential mm. and really were the thing that got me to school. And then I don't talk to those people anymore, really. Right. I mean, I've, I'm right. still friends with a couple, but like, I'm, I'm, it's not the same. And, you know, with... um. 
with We Sold Our Souls, I was really wrestling with the question of when do I stop? When do I right, give up here? Of course. Um, mm-hmm. And with, with Final Girl Support Group, the question that really motivated this was, um, you know, what does it mean that I've spent basically 40 years of my life watching people get murdered for fun. You know, I mean, that on some level, that's what horror is. And I wrote the book and sort of realized that actually the movies that I love are the ones where someone survives. And and to Mm. me, what I get away, what I walk away from is the worst possible thing happens Mm. and you can survive it. You may not look great at the end, but you can get through it. Um, Wow. And that was really, you know, for me. So that's really where it came from. Um, And the other thing I will say is at one point I went through and really like, there is not a single name in that book except maybe for the main characters that uh-huh. isn't someone from a horror movie. Uh, I noticed that. Oh, yeah. God, this is yeah. so fun. Any name, man, dig deep and you will find that connection. It was just, so I just felt like, fun. why not? Right. Um, yeah. You know, it was like, so great. Well, yeah. I remember it's, it's not it's funny. Okay, different people yeah. recognize different ones. They're like, Oh my God, this was so obvious. And other people are like, Oh my God, this one was so obvious. So right. clearly they're not all that obvious. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the ones, a couple that stood out to me again. This is not plot spoilers, but the there is a a family that is clearly the surrogate for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family, and they're the Hansons. And I figured that was for Gunnar Hansen, yeah. uh, you know. And then uh, there's a character who is adjacent to the Nightmare on Elm Street films that is called Heather. So I thought that was yeah. kind of interesting. So yeah, there's lots of fun in there. There were I picked up on a few that again, like based on my intersections were obvious to me, but I do think it's fun to hear that. Like no, they're all you know, like yeah. you said, I, and. Again, not spoiling, but the main character's own particular story, I wanted to tip my hat to your deep dive on on slasher films, because once it's revealed what her particular story is, I'm like, ah, oh, not that many people yeah. know about that one. <laughs> that was fun. Well, it was really fun. You know, it, it was funny, too. One other thing in that with the names, it was actually had this sort of thing, weird moment. So... When I was a kid, like I, I wanted to see so many R-rated movies because all my friends did, and my cousins, sure. and I just couldn't. And yeah. so, after our Cub Scout meetings at uh, Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, our mm-hmm. Scoutmaster would take us over to uh, the Oasis gas station to buy snacks, and um, I convinced him that I was allowed to buy magazines with my snack money, and <laughs> I would buy Fangoria because they would have descriptions, mm. like basically recount the entire plot with photos, yes. so then I could pretend I'd seen the movies. And the first one I got was a 1981 issue that was out on the stands that had a big feature on Friday the 13th Part 2. And oh, at the wow. beginning of that movie... Alice Hardy, who's who's played by Adrian King, um, is like, you know, the final girl from part one. And she's hanging out, you know, just in her depressing house and just having a life. And Mm. Jason suddenly appears and kills her. And I always thought that always stuck with me. And I was like, that is Mm. so cruel. Like, she Mm -hmm. survives all this stuff and just gets knocked off at the very beginning of the, like, it just felt heartless to me. Sure. And I always wanted to, I thought it was so cool to take a character from one movie and put them in. I mean, it was just so over when I wrote final girl support group, I I named one of the final girls, Adrian after Adrian King. Mm -hmm. And when the book was done, I sent it out to a bunch and I sent it to Adrian King. Oh, wow. Okay. She fell in love with the book Mm -hmm. and has been a huge advocate. And she and I were talking on the phone and she was telling me that, when she made part two, she had no idea that she wasn't the lead. 
Oh, th- wow. They hadn't told her. And she showed up on that set and she thought it was the first day of production and it was the wow. last. And oh, she hadn't seen the God. script yet, but she wasn't too worried. She knew they'd, she'd get sides as they went along and all that stuff. Wow. And she didn't know she was getting knocked off until the stuntman playing Jason started stabbing her with the fake ice pick. Wow. And then when it was mm-hmm. done, they just drove her home and dropped her off. And that was, that it. was it. That was it. And wow. it was so, and so Adrian's actually um, doing the audiobook for really uh, final girl oh, support group yeah it's not awesome. it's we, we, it'll be announced by the time this is on the air so okay feel okay. free to have it in the podcast but yeah don't don't tell anyone before then yeah um, you got it you got it but um but adrian so it was really it meant a lot to me to be able to rewrite this thing mm-hmm. that always bugged me sure. and sort of do bring this woman who kind of started me on all yeah. this, yeah, kind of back in here. It really, it, it Adrian be, meeting Adrian and sort of becoming friends with her has been a huge, like, real bonus for me, and, and really so meaningful awesome. for me in That's doing so this. Awesome. Um, and you know, yeah. and Adrian really like, you know, she had a stalker during Friday Part Two, and I and got to the that. yeah, yeah, and she got to the point where she had actually installed a lock on the inside of her bathroom door, the way Lynette does in the book, because it's mm. the only way she felt safe, like taking oh. a shower in her own house. And I can't imagine living in a world where I feel right. that unsafe in my own home. Right. Like I just no, can't. I understand. I understand. No, that's uh, and one thing, and we only have a couple minutes left, but. It is one th- one of the things that like you, you're talking about the the power to be able to sort of rewrite the story. One of the things, and I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just you know me overlaying my brain and my sensibilities onto your work. Um, but one of the things that I appreciate is in so much of your work, there's usually a moment where a character embraces responsibility for another character a character who's not Mm. necessarily beholden to them somebody that maybe they only know because they worked with them or maybe they only know because it's crossed their their intersection at some point but i really responded very strongly to that just just an an overarching sense of that you know that collective like hey we we can be responsible for each other because i feel like a lot of literature and sometimes even a lot of horror can be rooted in this sense of just trying to survive and, and sort of every man for himself. And especially you wrestle with it deliberately in some ways in final girl support group, but that, that way of like um, I just, I responded very strongly in a positive way. And I don't know if that's intentional or if, like I said, if I'm just overlaying, things for myself but it is something i picked up in more than one of your of your books no that's interesting because yeah it's very intentional you know one of the things i try hard to do is make my books look like the world i see around me Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so i often have characters who are religious in them uh, or christian in them because i grew up in south carolina yeah a lot of christians yeah um and even though some of them um i will play it for laughs just because i mean there is an element of that of 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 really overt um sort of almost evangelical christianity that i've gotten my i mean i have aunts who answer cousins who answer the phone praise the lord it's just there's a goofiness (laughs) to it but i made really sure that brother lemon and um uh, Best Friends Exorcism and mm-hmm. Slick and Southern Book Club both actually really step up when the crunch yes. comes and they mm-hmm. do it because of their faith. That's yeah. what gets them through it. And because because I 
don't think it's all funny. And one of the things I also want to do to reflect the world I see around me is um, life is hard, man. And we can't do it alone. And there have been so many times in my life where a friend or sometimes a total stranger has done something for me that unknowingly has bailed me out of a Mm. dark place, uh, either physically or uh, just emotionally. Right. And so I really try to make sure in my books that no one does it alone. It's only the other people around them who Mm -hmm. get them through. And it's only them also doing that for other people who sort of get them, gets them over the finish line. So at the end of the day, we, we are responsible for each other. And that's something Mm -hmm. that I find very depressing. I feel like there's a very strong strain of kind of what's in it for me right now and people acting as if they don't need to be responsible for other people. And I'm like, but we are, we, we, that, that is the, the, (laughs) that is the bedrock of what we do as human beings. We're responsible for each other. So yeah. So I have to pay a little more in taxes. So someone else Mm -hmm. does, you know, can, can Mm -hmm. feed their kid. Okay. That's, yeah, that's 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 the most that's the most passive version of it, you know. Yeah, so right. Um, no, and that's really something I got. Like, I am not religious at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and you know, and and dreaded it, dreaded going every time, <laughs> dreaded Sunday school. But I will say that you know, volunteering and and that kind of giving is a habit I picked up in from church that I sure. keep because I feel weird not doing it i actually sure, feel I not i'm some saint but it just eats at me if i'm not yeah. because i feel like we have to yeah it's that drumbeat well and i can remember i can't remember i should not quote things if i can't remember who they who, who <laughs> said them but um i remember somebody was asked at one point like what's the first sign of civilization and their answer was a healed bone like the fact that a bone had been healed it meant they were protected long enough mm. that their bone could heal. They weren't easy oh, prey for a predator or something. That's, that's the first. That's the first sign of civilization is that they were cared for in that. Yeah. And I, and I love it again, not to, you know, we literally have like 30 or 40 seconds left. So I just uh, like, I love so much about how many times in not every book, but most of your books, um, it is those relationships and that embrace of responsibility that ultimately undermines the evil or the threat that is at play. And it's, uh, it's definitely something that connects with me as a reader uh, and my sensibility and something that I always look forward to in each of your works. And so, Grady, I just can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. This This is fun. Yeah, this has been a blast. We would love if we have the opportunity to uh, maybe, uh, we've done this before on the show, maybe have another little book club session where we do a deeper dive on one of your novels and actually go like all spoiler in and and invite you back to have a conversation on one of those and just unpack and unravel all of it because that's kind of, that's what we love to do here. No, send me some dates and and uh, let me know when you do one of those Stephen King things again. I always love talking about King. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. would love that. Yeah, we, um, so we'll definitely have you back. Again, can't thank you enough for your graciousness, your time. Um, and uh, listeners, so uh, the the Final Girl Support Group hits stands and, and Digital Pathways on July 13th. I've read it. It is a very, very enjoyable book. You are not going to uh, consider it a waste of your time. It's a really, really fun, a very quick read. Um, and that's by Grady Hendrick. And uh, if, if I can steal your pitch from you, I, I'm presuming all the rest of your work at GradyHendrix.com to find that's everything it. else. All right. Yep. Find everything else that's on there. Please check him out. Uh, Grady, again, thank you so much. We'll have you back. And as we say on every episode, uh, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Grady, thanks so much again. 
Thanks a lot, man. Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.